Thank you, Richard and Emily, for ministering in music this evening. We are in Psalm 1, and I hope you picked up one of the handouts, and we will just work our way through it, beginning with a quote from Dale Ralph Davis, which he says, and I quote, Why is Psalm 1 Psalm 1? Why is it placed here? In the church today, we need such help with praise, so why isn't Psalm 150 Psalm 1? And how we need to learn worship, so why isn't Psalm 100 or 95 Psalm 1? What could be more winsome than plastering the mercy of God across the front page of the Psalter? So why isn't Psalm 103 at the first? Maybe we need to show how attuned the Psalms are to human need and troubles. So why isn't Psalm 73 Psalm 1? Or with a breakdown in family life, maybe Psalm 128 should be here. Or perhaps, first of all, we need a grand view of the majesty and wonder of God, and we think Psalm 139 should be Psalm 1. So why is Psalm 1 Psalm 1? Because it packs a, much, a matter of such supreme importance. Here two ways, two humanities, two destinies are clearly spelled out. I think that's a wonderful introduction to Psalm 1 and to the Psalter. For the Word of God is truly foundational to the entire Psalter. Uh, Pastor Cruz is working his way through Psalm 119. And of course 119 is a psalm of praise to the Word of God and it speaks of its nuanced differences and how valuable the Word of God is in so many different situations. You think of Psalm 19, where it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth forth his handiwork. Day unto day other is speech, and a night showeth forth knowledge. There certainly is instruction even from creation. We can see that there's a God. We can see that that God is awesome, he's powerful, simply from the things that he made. But creation is very limited in what it can actually tell us about the person of God about the characteristics, the qualities of God, what God expects from us, and what God has done for us, especially in the sending of his Son. So, the Psalms, and ultimately our praise, are informed and based by the Word of God. So Psalm 1 begins by talking about the relationship that people have to the Word of God, and two different approaches, two different ideas, uh, two different ways of living in relationship to the Word of God, and those two ways are described as the blessed man and the wicked man. So the theme is the contrast between the blessed man and the wicked man. The first is the contrast in the way in which they live their lives. Negatively, it begins with how the blessed person does not live. First, the blessed person does not follow the advice of those who fail to take God's Word into consideration. It's found in verse 1 where it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. The counsel being the advice, the instruction of the ungodly. The wicked or the ungodly are those who do not take the instruction of Scripture into account. Their lives and their decision making is not governed by the Word of God. But we need to understand that when it talks about not taking God's Word into account, we're going to see later uh, in this psalm, those that are antagonistic to the Word of God. Uh, these are not so. These are just people that 
are ignorant of the word of God. These are, these are people that simply don't take God's word into consideration. And they may be very, very wise individuals as we see and see. Uh, they may be wise by worldly standards, but make decisions that are not scripturally based. And we're not to seek our advice from such individuals. Again, not necessarily opposed to God's word, just neglect it. Don't even think about it. Just doesn't enter into their thought process. And it certainly isn't the basis for the decision making of their lives. They look elsewhere for wisdom, for instruction, for guidance than the word of God. Secondly, the blessed person does not throw in their lot with those who reject God's authority. It's found in verse 1 in that underlying section where it says, nor stands in the way of sinners. As the word sinners is used here, it's referring to those who reject the authority of the word of God in their lives. So this is a step stronger. The first just simply didn't take God's word into account. They don't read it. They don't think about it. They don't reflect upon it. They're not particularly negative to it. It just doesn't enter into their thinking. Now, the second group here are negative to the Word of God. They reject its authority. They refuse to bow to what it says. They may be very familiar with it. They may have been brought up in a setting where the Word of God has been taught. They may be able to quote it. They may be able to uh, actually give you instruction from it but they reject its authority, and especially its authority over them as an individual. Uh, They don't want to be under the constraints of Scripture. They don't want to be brought into conformity with it. They want to live as they want to live. Don't tell me what to do is the idea. So B, these are people who do not merely ignore the word, as in the previous section, rather they know what the word says, but refuse to do it. Third, the blessed person does not join in the mockery of spiritual people and things. Found in the end of verse 1 where it says, sits in the seat of the scoffers. The blessed man elevates, not demeans the word of God and God's people. So there's a progression here in this uh, psalm. It starts off with blessed man that walks, not in the counsel of God, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scornful. You can see the progression from walking to standing to finally sitting down and being very comfortable and staying there. And here it's sitting with the seat of the scoffers. The scoffers are those who uh, make light of their own sinfulness and ridicule those who are seeking to live a godly life. They make fun of those that are going to follow the scripture. Okay? They ridicule them. They, they mock them. Uh, they jeer them. They think that how stupid can you be? Uh, what an ignoramus that you're going to base your life on the word of God. And they are going to have fun at your expense. Certainly the believer is not to enter into a mockery of those that place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's always a temptation when uh, you're in a setting that is far different than the church, when you are with a bunch of people uh, that are uh, joking and mocking and making fun 
especially of religious people, that you are not comfortable in that setting, that you will not be a part of those uh, jibes and, and those jokes, uh, but you're going to separate yourself from it. So application. We must always remember that the lure of the wicked and sinners and scoffers does not usually appear in its grossest form. It may come in rather a bump-along fashion from teachers or friends or family or spouses. It simply suggests that if you don't think this way, you will not be thought sharp. If you don't act this way, you will not be cool. If you don't laugh at what we mock, we don't want any part of you. Verse 1 is not merely description, but warning. A sort of Old Testament Romans 12, too. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. So we are not to be like the, those that are described. Positively, it does, doesn't start off with a negative, but now moves to the positive. What the godly does do. First, the blessed man is inclined to or is drawn towards the word of God, like a moth is drawn to the light. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Now this word delight, of which there are many different Hebrew words that are translated into English as delight, is one that is, as I say, uh, speaks about being drawn to or inclined to. Uh, We would uh, say that they find the word of God attractive. And they are attracted to the word. They're, they're drawn to it. They find themselves just wanting to read the scriptures, wanting to meditate upon the scriptures. As they have free time, as there is opportunity, their thought goes to the scriptures, wanting to know them better, wanting to reflect upon them. A, the blessed, uh, so this person is, as I say, attracted to the scriptures. Now, my dad was a a wonderful influence on my life, and one of the things that uh, influenced me greatly was his love for the word. My father was a layman, but he really enjoyed the scriptures and enjoyed reading the scriptures. And as he retired, he read them even a lot more. And so my dad was constantly uh, in the word of, of, of of of, uh, the scriptures. So, as many of you know, my father came down with Alzheimer's. And uh, pretty severely so, by the time that he uh, died. And uh, if you know much about Alzheimer's, there are four stages to it. And he went through all four stages. And the fourth stage is the most grievous. Uh, Hallucinations are common. Uh, People lose touch with reality, which he did. And uh, he would wander, and uh, he lived with us, but his thoughts, <laughs> when they were the best, would be of home, and he'd want to go home. And he didn't think about packing bags, or he didn't think about taking anything with him, you know, he just was setting out to go home. And of course, he had no idea where that was, but what struck me was on those occasions, and they were pretty frequent, where he would just set out to go home, he always took his Bible with him. It was just second nature. Now, by that time, he he really couldn't read the scriptures and and understand them. In fact, 
he tried, and he'd come up with some pretty strange <laughs> interpretation because his mind just wasn't there any longer. But there was such an affinity through the years with the Word of God that it was just natural for him that when he was leaving the house, he was taking the Bible with him. The idea here is, is comf- comfortableness, familiarity, uh, wanting to have the Word of God influence us, wanting to be involved in the Word. Second, again, there's progression. The blessed man reflects on what God's Word teaches at all times and in all situations. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The blessed man is constantly viewing life through the lens of God's Word. It's ever before them. The person is contemplative and intentional in thinking and actions. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we have this in picturesque form where God tells the people to wear phylacteries. And phylacteries uh, were uh, little boxes that uh, contained just a small portion of God's word. It was symbolic. And they would wear the phylacteries and they would strap them to their head. And the idea was that God's word would be before them, that God's word would be on their thoughts. It would be on their minds. And so the blessed man is the one that meditates, reflects, thinks about, thinks about God's word constantly. Of course, in order to do that, you need to know it. In order to do that, you need to memorize it. In order to do that, you have to know what it says. All right? So we're not talking about reading it constantly, but constantly asking yourself, what does the word of God say? There was a fad, a Christian fad, that taught us how to make decisions, and it was WJD. Remember that? WJD. What does that stand for? WWJD. Thank you. Yes. What would Jesus do? And that was the way you were to make your contemplation. But what would Jesus do? That's very subjective. Uh, You can go anywhere with that. What would Jesus do? Well, I'll tell you what Jesus would do. Jesus would follow the scriptures. Jesus would obey the word of God. Jesus would do what the word of God tells us and instructs us to do. So it's not what would Jesus do, but what does the word say? What does the word say? We're constantly drawn back to that question. In all aspects of life, what would God's word teach me to do? How should I react in this particular situation? That's the way the godly person lives his or her life. So application. So total immersion in the word of Yahweh forms the basis of the believer's life and is his or her pleasure and preoccupation. Secondly, the contrast and the stability of the godly man and the ungodly. The blessed man has a life of stability. The blessed man is grounded. Verse 3. He is like a tree planted. Like a tree planted. Ephesians picks up on that same imagery. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and you being rooted, grounded in love. Firmly established in the word of God. The Bible is not pie in the sky, but fish on the dish here and now. And the person finds themselves grounded, rooted 
in the word of God. Two, the blessed man is productive. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. The bearing of fruit is a natural result of a tree that is getting the proper nutrients, like a tree that is planted by streams of water. The tree produces fruit because it's planted by the stream of water. If you plant the tree in the desert, it's going to wither, it's going to die, it's not going to bear fruit. For it is the stream that provides the tree with what it needs in order to bear fruit. So in the analogy, it's the word of God that causes us to bear fruit in our lives. It is that which transforms us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 12, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that renewal process comes through the word of God. Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth, Thy word is truth. And the word for sanctify there is to cleanse, is to renew, it's to establish. The word of God is like a scrub brush that removes all the wrong thinking, all the muck of everything that's poured into us from the world's perspective and gives us a new insight, gives us a new understanding and causes us then to bear fruit. Like a tree that's planted by streams of water, he's a person who is steadfast in drawing benefits from the word. The bearing of fruit takes time, for it says in this verse, in verse 3, that yields its fruit in its season. A tree doesn't produce an apple overnight. There is a season. There is growth. There is development. And so, too, the word of God bears fruit in our lives over an extended period of time. The more mature we are in our faith, the more that we have given ourselves to the scriptures. And uh, you know that my theme every year is reading the Bible through in a year. Why do I do that? Well, the more familiar we come with the word of God, the more natural it is for us to think that way. At least the more informed we are. If we don't know what it says, we can't live it. Uh, If we don't know what God's promises are, we can't claim them. And so as we allow ourselves to be saturated by the word of God, it's naturally, naturally going to produce fruit in us. Uh, That word is powerful. It's sharp. It's living sharper than any two-edged sword. That word of God is going to be effectual in our lives. We can count on it. We can count on it. But we've got to give ourselves to it on a regular and consistent basis. Three, the blessed man achieves the end for which he is created. says in verse 3, the streams of water that yields its fruit and its leaf does not wither. So this person doesn't dry up. This person doesn't quit. This person continues on. So the blessed man sees the outcome of his godly commitments. And all that he does, he prospers. That doesn't mean he becomes rich. 
The success of which this is speaking is the fulfillment, the accomplishment of that which is intended. It means that we will do what the word of God is intended to produce in us. It will be effectual. Psalm 37 verse 5 says, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring it to pass. He will make it successful. In Joshua chapter 1, starting at verse 7, we have the uh, admonition to Joshua as he's taking over leadership from Moses. And this is the word to Joshua. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And it is the word of God that will convince us of those truths. It's the word of God that will remind us that God is with us. It's the word of God that will bring about the courage and the strength to live for him. The word of God will cause us to be successful. That's important to always keep in mind in a world that's striving for success. In a world that wants to get ahead. In a world that wants to prosper. In the busy, everyday aspects of each of our lives. That tendency to think that we are so busy that we don't have time to spend in the Word of God like we'd want to. It's so easy to think of that as a luxury. You know, uh, I, I love to read the scriptures. I, I really am inclined to do that, but I have such a busy day today. There's so much I have to do. There's so much I have to get done. It's helpful to keep in mind that the word of God is going to be helpful in your accomplishing what you need to do today. That word of God is actually not going to be a detriment, but an aid to your busy day, an aid to fulfill all the God-given responsibilities and duties that we possess. The wicked person has a life of instability. The wicked are not like a tree, but like the chaff. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now the chaff is the husk that is on the grain. It is superfluous, meaningless, and in the end, worthless. Uh, chaff. What does one do with chaff? Well, it becomes straw. And it's used for bedding and for other things, but it's not a nutrient. It's not useful for things other than perhaps trying to trap water and putting it on grass so the grass will grow. But the point is it's not stable. The wind just drives it away. 
Two, the wicked are not grounded, but rather driven by the winds. This is a picture of instability. Verse 4, where it says that the, the chaff, the wind drives away. Now, Ephesians 4 uses a similar analogy, where it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's talking about how to grow, how to, how to become more mature, how, how to be more Christ-like. With the intent, verse 14, so that we be not, uh, so that we be no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. The instability here is this person is constantly changing their mind. This person is constantly questioning their relationship to God, questioning the truth, questioning what it is that they are to believe, questioning whether or not I can lose my salvation, questioning how God works, questioning whether God exists or not, questioning, questioning, questioning. And this person is unstable. They're not grounded. And they are easily influenced. And mature people can be that way. I worked on a study committee with one person that drove me nuts. Because <clears throat> we were working on a pretty important doctrinal uh, position for the denomination. And this person, <clears throat> there were two positions that were being taken by the study committee that were quite different positions. And he was in the middle. And he literally was in the middle. Because it depended on who he talked to last. If he talked to so-and-so, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, I see that. And he was ready to vote that way. And then when he talked to the other side, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, that's probably true. And he was bouncing back and forth at every meeting. Drove me nuts. Make up your mind. Know what you believe. Well, we are to be people that know what we believe. Genesis 49, 3 and 4. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might the first fruits of my strength, permanent in dignity and preeminent in power. Now notice this. After saying, you're my firstborn, my might, first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity, prominent in power. And then he says, unstable as water. Unstable as water. You, you can't rely upon it. You can't walk upon the water. Only Jesus can do that. Unstable, unstable. There are many ways in which the world impacts our thinking. There's, there, there are many different ways in which our culture tends to have a tremendous influence upon us. That's why it says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And, and some of them are extremely subtle. Extremely subtle. And one of them has to do with steadfastness. You know, uh, it is commendable. It is praiseworthy that our eternal God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. He doesn't change. And in order to be like our unchangeable God, we are to be steadfast. First Corinthians, my life verse. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable. Think about that. Steadfast, immovable. You can't be shaken. 
Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in, uh, not in vain in the Lord. Our world relishes change. And we become addicted to change. We are constantly looking for the new, the novel, the different. One of the worst things that can be said about us is that we are in a rut. We do the same things the same way. We constantly think the same things. But in the word of God, that's commendable. If, if what we are committed to is the word, because the word doesn't change. And so because the word doesn't change, we don't change. Now, we've got to be careful. We're not talking about you can't remodel a sanctuary, right? We're not saying you can't buy a different car. We're not saying that you've got to dress the same color every day. Obviously not. But what we are saying is the word of God is always relevant. The word of God is always practical. And the word of God always trumps the new and the novel of culture. Especially when it comes to understanding what do we need to do to be successful. As a church, what do we need to do to reach our society? What do we need to do to promote growth, to create disciples? And it's easy to look around and try to get the answers from a thousand and one sources. But the source book must be the word of God. And then you must cling to that word and refuse to be drawn away from it by other winds of doctrine, by other winds that blow and would teach us something far, far different. Stability, grounded, committed, can be counted upon, steadfast. And then thirdly, there's the con contrast in their future well-being. The future state of the ungodly is described. The ungodly will not endure God's judgment. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. That is, they will not be found standing in the end of, the end of judgment. That means they're going to be brought down, they're, they're going to be brought low. They're going to be condemned. Sinners will, be not, will not be numbered among God's people, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. One of the things that we are looking forward to in eternity is dwelling together with people of like precious faith. Uh, Thessalonians tells us that we should not grieve like those who have no hope. And a part of that Hope is being reunited with our loved ones, with those who have died before us in the faith, those who are part of God's people. The ungodly are not going to be standing in the congregation of the righteous. They're not going to be numbered among God's people. That shouldn't surprise us, for many times the 
ungodly are not even numbered among the visible congregation. They're not churchgoers. They're not people that are associating themselves with the believers, or at least those that are committed to the scriptures. So these are not going to stand. At the judgment, they are not going to be a part of the congregation of the righteous, but rather they're going to be destroyed. They'll be, they will perish. That doesn't mean they will be annihilated. It means that they will be dashed in their hopes and their dreams. All that they anticipate will not come to fruition. We live in a particular period of time in which a belief in hell is out of fashion. It's not in vogue. In fact, they say that even evangelicals, only a third of evangelicals believe that there's a hell. Uh, That to me is mind-boggling. But there just is this sense There's just this belief that's very common that everybody's going to go to heaven. And there is this thought when a person dies that, well, at least they're better off. The thinking is that now they've suffered. Right now they they may have cancer or, the, or, or they may have other ailments. And, well, at least they're in a better place. But that's said by believer and non-believer alike. That's said by those who trust in the scriptures and those who don't. But what's mind-boggling, it's said by the religious and the irreligious, the unreligious. Those that would claim to be an atheist, even, will in times of need have this hope that at least death is a better place. It's an escape. It's an escape. Those people are in for a rude awakening. Their dreams are going to be dashed. Their expectations are not going to be met they are going to be woefully disappointed. And all those are incredible understatements, for it's going to be hideous. It's going to be hideous. The point is, these are significant issues. These are life and death issues. These have the highest importance. It should have a priority in our thinking. The most important question that anyone can face in life is what is going to happen to me after I die? Where will I be? What will I be experiencing? What will I go through? Some just put it out of their mind. 
the ungodly. Some have been taught it and rejected. The sinner. And then the, there are others who mock and make fun of the simpleton that believes in Jesus and believes that through him you can have everlasting life and be in God's presence. Well, for the simpleton who believes in judgment, the implication is they will endure God's judgment, they will be numbered among God's people, and the righteous will have an eternal relationship to God, verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. That is the ultimate contrast. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, meaning that the Lord governs that way. The Lord provides that way. So A, the reason for the certainty of the judgment lies in God's knowledge in the affairs of men. God knows. The knowledge of God involves not only an objective knowledge about the righteous, but also a just subjective relationship with them assuring them that he cares for his own, protects them, and will reward them. Job 23, verse 10 says, But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. It is so important to keep in mind that the Lord knows all about us. John chapter 10, Jesus said, I know my sheep. I know my sheep. We can fool people. People can think that we have a relationship to the Lord that we don't. Many of you know my testimony. As a child, I pretended that I was a Christian when I knew that I wasn't. I had my parents fooled, and my brother and sister fooled, but I came to a realization one night that I didn't have God fooled. And I would just simply say to anyone here tonight, the Lord knows. And it isn't beyond the realm of possibility that there is somebody sitting here who deep down inside knows that they are far different than the facade that they put on. They know deep down in the innermost recess of their heart, they are not what they are projecting to others. And they have everybody fooled. I say to you, everybody but God. God knows. And then conversely, in the times of our struggle, in the times of our doubt, in the times of our anxiety, the Lord knows. The Lord knows our hearts. He remembers that we are feeble. He remembers that we are but dust. He cares and loves his own. And you can be assured that if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation, that you have everlasting life. And if you want more comfort 
But if you want more reassurance, if you want to be more assured of those truths, what's the answer? Read the scriptures. Study the scriptures. Be planted in the scriptures. It will bear fruit in your life. It will nourish you. You will bring forth that fruit and it will not wither. It will continue with you. You will be steadfast to the end by God's grace and the word that's effectual. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that you would help us to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And we know that you have given us that word to be an effectual agent in our lives. Lord, uh, guard us to simply not live apart from your word. Not that we would degradate your word, not that we would challenge its authority, but, but Lord, just help us not to be apathetic towards it, to be indifferent, to let it just reside on a shelf and only bring the word out on Sundays when we gather. But Lord, help us to be planted in your word so that we can meditate day and night, so we can reflect on the decisions we make, on the struggles that we face, on the emotions with which we wrestle. And we can constantly, constantly be asking ourselves, what does the word of God say? What is the promise to help me through this? What is the instruction that it gives to help me know what to do? How to pray? What stance to take with my child? How to rear them? What we should do as a church? As elders? As a congregation? Lord, thank you for your word. May we cherish it, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.